Chapter 7, Part 3 of The Curious Lore of Precious Stones. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Curious Lore of Precious Stones by George Frederick Kuntz. The yellow girdles worn by the Chinese emperors of the Manchu dynasty were variously ornamented with precious stones according to the different ceremonial observances at which the emperor presided. For the services in the Temple of Heaven, the very appropriate choice of lapis lazuli ornaments was made. For the altar of earth, yellow jade was favored. For a sacrifice on the altar of the sun, the gems were red corals, while white jade was selected for the ceremonies before the altar of the moon. Jade of different colors was used for the six precious tablets employed in the worship of heaven and earth and the four cardinal points. For the worship of heaven, there was the dark green round tablet, for that of earth an octagonal tablet of yellow jade. The east was worshipped with a green pointed tablet, the west was worshipped with the white tiger tablet, the north with a black semicircular tablet, and the south with a tablet of red jade. Of all the Chinese works on jade, the most interesting and remarkable is the Kuyutoyu Pu, or Illustrated Description of Ancient Jade. A catalogue divided into a hundred books and embellished with upward of seven hundred figures. It was published in 1176 and lists the magnificent collection of jade objects belonging to the first emperor of the southern Sung dynasty. One of the treasures here described was a four-sided plaque of pure white jade over two feet in height and breadth, and it was regarded as of altogether exceptional value, for on it was a design miraculously engraven. This was a figure seated on a mat with a flower vase on its left and an alms bowl on the right, in the midst of rocks enveloped in clouds. The figure was an image of the Buddhist saint, Samanta Bahadra, and the plaque is said to have been washed out of a sacred cave in the year 1068 by a violent and mysterious current. Jade talismans are very popular at the present day in the Mohammedan world and among the Turks they are so highly prized as heirlooms that it is difficult to secure any of them. There is an orthodox Mohammedan sect whose members call themselves Pekdash, and who during their whole lifetime carry about with them a flat piece of jade as a protection against injury or annoyance of every kind. The four rain-making gods are shown wearing necklaces of coral and turquoise in the ceremonial sand paintings of the Navajos. These four gods are respectively colored to denote the four cardinal points, black for north, blue for south, yellow for west, and white for east. The whole painting, measuring 9 by 13 feet, is guarded on three sides by magic wands. Toward the east it is left unprotected, as only good spirits are believed to dwell in this direction. Each of the rain gods carries suspended from his right wrist an elaborately decorated tobacco pouch, bearing the figure of a stone pipe. The Navajos believe that in this pouch the god places a ray of sunlight with which he lights his pipe. When he smokes, clouds form in the sky and the rain descends. In the sand picture representing the god of the whirlwind, this divinity also wears ear pendants and a necklace of turquoise. Of the turquoise in Aztec times, we have the testimony of the missionary Bernardino de Sahagan that one variety, presumably that regarded as the finest and most attractive, bore the name Tuxivitl, 
which signified turquoise of the gods. No one was allowed either to own or wear this, as it was exclusively devoted to the service of the gods, whether as a temple offering or for the decoration of the divine images. Sahagun describes this turquoise as fine, unspotted, and very clear. It was very rare and was brought to Mexico from afar. Some specimens were of rounded shape, like a hazelnut cut in half. Others were broad and flat, and some were pitted as though in a state of decomposition. The god of fire, Jayutukatli, or Ishsokokwi, presided over the ceremony of piercing the ears of the young boys and girls. The image of this god was decorated with earrings encrusted with a mosaic of turquoise. He held in his left hand a buckler on which were five large green stones called chalchutl, jadeite, placed in the form of a cross on a plate of gold almost covering the shield. At the time of the Spanish conquest an immense emerald, almost as large as an ostrich egg, was adored by the Peruvians in the city of Manta. This emerald goddess bore the name of Umina, and, like some of the precious relics of the Christian world, was only exhibited on high feast days, when the Indians flocked to the shrine from far and near, bringing gifts to the goddess. The wily priests especially recommended the donation of emeralds, saying that these were the daughters of the goddess, who would be well pleased to see her offspring. In this way, an immense store of emeralds rewarded the efforts of the priests, and on the conquest of Peru, all these fine stones fell into the hands of Pedro de Alvarado, Garcilaso de la Vega, and their companions. The mother emerald, however, had been so cleverly concealed by the priests of the shrine that the Spaniards never succeeded in gaining possession of it. Many of the other emeralds were destroyed because of the ignorance and stupidity of some of their new owners, who, supposing that the test of a true emerald was its ability to withstand hard blows, laid the stones on an anvil and hammered them to pieces. The old and entirely false notion that the genuine diamond could endure this treatment may have suggested the unfortunate test. Garcilaso likens the growth of the emerald in its mine to that of a fruit on a tree, and he believed that it gradually acquired its beautiful green hue, that part of the crystal nearest the sun being the first to acquire color. He notes an interesting specimen found in Peru, half of which was colorless like glass, while the other half was a brilliant green. This he compares with a half-ripened fruit. The remarkable jade adze, generally known as the Kunz adze, was found in Oaxaca, Mexico, brought to the United States about 1890, and is now in the American Museum of Natural History, New York. Of a light greenish-gray hue with a slight tinge of blue, this jade artifact is 272 millimeters long, 10 and 13 sixteenths inches, 153 millimeters wide, 6 inches, and 118 millimeters thick, 4 and 5 eighths inches. Its weight is 229.3 troy ounces, nearly 16 pounds of avoirdupois. Rudely, but not unskillfully, carved upon its face is a grotesque human figure. Four small, shallow depressions, one under each eye and one near each hand, may have served to hold in place small gold films, but no trace of gold decoration is now extant. In its mechanical execution, this adze offers evidence of considerable skill on the part of the Aztec lapidary. 
the polish equaling that of modern workers. In the fact that a large piece, which must apparently have weighed at least two pounds, has evidently been cut out of this implement by some one of its Indian owners, we can see a proof of the talismanic power ascribed to jadeite in Aztec times, for there can be little doubt that nothing less than a belief in the great virtue of jadeite, coupled with the rarity of the material, could have induced the mutilation of what must have been regarded in its time as a remarkable work of art. The source of the prehistoric jade, nephrite and jadeite, found in Europe, and also of that worked into ornaments by the Indians before the Spanish conquest of America, was long the subject of contention among mineralogists and archaeologists. In Germany, this question was denominated the nephritfrage, and the most notable contribution to the discussion was the great scientific and scholarly work issued by Heinrich Fischer. His conclusion was that as there was no evidence of the existence of these minerals outside of a few localities in Asia, the European and American supply must have been brought to these parts of the world from Asia, and that hence the presence of these jade artifacts in America clearly pointed to commercial intercourse at an early period between the American continent and Asia, and might be regarded as offering a strong argument in favor of an Asiatic origin for an American civilization. According to this theory, the prehistoric jade objects found in Europe must have had a similar source and would constitute a proof of the existence of traffic with remote points in Asia at a date long previous to that commonly accepted. This view was strongly opposed by Professor A. B. Meyer of Dresden, and recent discoveries have effectively disproved the theory in the case of Europe, at least, for nephrite has been found there in situ in several places. The largest mass of this material that has been taken from a European deposit is that found by the writer Jordansmul in Silesia in April 1899, and which weighed 4,704 pounds. The origin of American jade in the forms of nephrite and jadeite has not yet been determined, but we have every reason to suppose that deposits of these minerals will eventually be discovered in various parts of the American continent, as they have already been in Europe. Indeed, the existence of nephrite in Alaska is already well attested. The peculiar and characteristic qualities of these substances have made them favorite materials for ornamental objects from the earliest ages down to our own day, and in almost all parts of the world. A most important element contributing to the popularity of jade has been its supposed possession of wonderful talismanic and therapeutic virtues. And while the Western world has not the same belief in these matters as the Eastern world, a more or less definite appreciation of what jade still signifies for many in the Orient continues to exercise an influence over both Americans and Europeans, making objects of nephrite or jadeite highly prized everywhere at the present time. The term chalchihuitl was indifferently applied by the ancient Mexicans to a number of green or greenish-white stones, quetzal chalchihuitl, which was regarded as the most precious variety, may perhaps have been more exclusively denoted jadeite. This is somewhat indefinitely described by Sahagun as being white with much transparency and with a slight greenish tinge, something like jasper. Of eight ornamental objects of green stone examined some years ago by the writer, 
Four were of jadeite, one of serpentine, another of green quartz, and the remaining two of a mixture of white feldspar and green hornblende. An inferior kind of chalchuil, said by Sahogan to have come from quarries in the vicinity of Tecalco, appears to have been identical with the so-called Mexican onyx, which is found in veins in that place and is an aragonite stalagmite. This material from which figures, ornaments, and beads were made by the ancient Mexicans is today greatly valued as an ornamental stone. The greater number of ancient Mexican jadeite beads appear to have been rounded pebbles of this material, assorted as to size, and drilled for use in making necklaces. Other green stones used at this time in Mexico were green jasper, green plasma, serpentine, and also the Tecalco onyx, or marble above mentioned. In many cases, these substances are of such rich green that they might easily be mistaken for jadeite by those who lack the tests or the experience at the command of modern mineralogists. Should jadeite ever be found in situ in Mexico, it seems probable that the discovery will be made in the state of Oaxaca, whence came the finest ancient specimens, including the splendid votive ads. Moreover, one of the few materials by which jadeite can be worked is furnished by the streams of this region, whence have been taken several rolled pebbles, which the writer has identified as yellow and blue corundum, the quality being equal to that of specimens from Ceylon. Gessner describes one of the lip ornaments worn by the Aborigines of South America in the following words, a green stone or gem which the inhabitants of the West Indies use, they pierce their lips and insert this stone so that the thicker part adheres to the hole and the rest protrudes. We might call these ornaments orapenduli, mouth pendants. This stone was given me by a learned Piedmontese, Johannes Ferrarius, and he wrote of it as follows. I send a cylindrical green stone as long as a man's middle finger, and having at one extremity two ridges. It is stated that the Brazilians of high rank wore these from their youth in their pierced lips, one or more being worn according to the dignity of the wearer. While eating, or whenever they so wish for any other reason, these ornaments are removed from the lips. Similar ornaments made of a green quartz and of beryl are in the Kunz collection in the Field Museum of Chicago. The reason for these strange mutilations, which often cause serious discomfort to those who practice them, is not at all easy to determine. Some have conjectured that by the insertion of bright colored objects in the ears, nose, and lips, members of the same tribe were enabled to recognize each other at a distance, each tribe having selected a particular color. However, although certain local preferences are shown in the matter of color or material, there is no hard and fast rule in this matter, and frequently neighboring tribes will employ stones or shells of the same or similar hue and appearance. Others find in this custom a religious significance and suppose that the mutilation represents a form of sacrifice to the spirits, good or bad, who must be rendered favorable to man by some act on his part, showing his unconditional submission to them. Originating in this way, the idea of adornment was a secondary impulse. It is a fact that ancient peoples regarded the wearing of earrings as a badge of slavery, and according to rabbinical legend, Eve's ears were pierced as a punishment for her disobedience when she was driven from the Garden of Eden. 
A curious theory was advanced by Knopf. He calls attention to the habit children have of thrusting small bright objects into their noses and ears, and suggests that this indicates a natural propensity, which, coupled with the early developed love of adornment, induced primitive man to affix ornamental objects on or in the nose, ear, or mouth. There may be more in this than we are willing to admit, but on the whole it seems most probable that ceremonial and religious considerations give rise to the custom. One of the largest masses of sculptured Chinese jade is in the collection of T.B. Walker, Esquire, of Minneapolis. This shows a jade mountain with groups of figures artistically placed at its base and winding pathways up to its summit. On the face of the rock is inscribed in beautiful Chinese characters the Epidendron Pavilion Essay of Wang Haichi, a masterpiece of Chinese calligraphy. An enormous mass of New Zealand jade, Punamu, green stone, weighing 7,000 pounds, found in South Island in 1902, is to be seen in the Museum of Natural History, New York. It was secured by the writer and was donated to the museum by the late J. Pierpont Morgan. This is the largest mass of jade known, of which we have any record. On it is placed a remarkable, and in its own peculiar way, an artistic decoration, serving as a type of old Maori life, and at the same time designating the geographic source of the jade in a striking and unmistakable manner calculated to appeal to the least intelligent visitor. This is a statue of a Maori warrior of the old days, executing a war dance, characteristics of which were a distortion of the features and a thrusting out of the tongue intended to express defiance and contempt of the enemy. The time or cadence of the dance was marked by slapping the thigh with the flat of the left hand. This figure was executed from life by Sigurd Neandros. Indeed, it was actually cast from the model, so that there can be no doubt as to its fidelity. Rock crystal is included among the various objects used as fetishes by the Cherokee Indians. This stone is believed to have great power to give aid in hunting and also in divining. One owner of such a crystal kept his magic stone wrapped up in buckskin and hid it in a sacred cave. At stated intervals he would take it out of its repository and feed it by rubbing over it the blood of a deer. This goes to prove that the stone, as a fetish, was considered to be a living entity and as such to require nourishment. End of chapter 7, part 3. Recording by Joan Windle, Hampshire, Illinois.